Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, I'm going to hop in quickly to tell you what you are going to hear. This is part two of a two-part workshop on writing and producing audio drama from the Women's Theatre Festival Conference in 2020. The two-hour workshop was presented via Zoom by Aurelia Belfield and me on July 29, 2020. The previous episode, part one, focused almost exclusively on tips for writing audio dramas based on my experience writing Master Builder and The New Colossus. This episode, part two, features much more of the fabulous executive producer Aurelia Belfield and covers the producing aspect of making audio dramas, including casting, production teams, rehearsal and recording, budgets, and more. Since this workshop, Aurelia and I produced an audio drama anthology titled The Declaration of Love, which we released in October 2020. And we released a podcast episode specifically about producing that anthology during COVID. I'll pop the link for that in the show notes if you want to have more producing information. As always, we are sharing thoughts and suggestions based on our experiences at the moment of recording. You might do things differently, and we might do things differently now and in the future. But I think that there's lots here to get your wheels turning and hopefully to encourage you to make your own audio dramas. One last thing. What you are about to hear is essentially raw footage scooped from Zoom. I cleaned it up a little bit by deleting big pauses and such, but it sounds exactly like what it was. A live virtual workshop on Zoom during the pandemic. Big thanks to Chelsea Russell for covering the tech during our live session and Johanna Maynard-Edwards, who gave us the okay to share this via Artist Soapbox. If you'd like to submit to the Women's Theatre Festival and Conference 2021, submissions are open until April 16th. More info on womenstheaterfestival.com. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy. So now we're going to get into the collaborative part of team building, building your collective, and that's a lot of pieces and parts. So we have talked a lot about what goes into making a great uh, base piece, right? And I know that that sounds like a whole lot of stuff to have to hold in your mind and, and think about constantly, and that's why you build a team. One person doing this, as much as it seems very sort of likely impossible because we all have computers. We can all buy microphones. We can all have Google drives. Trying to do all of this as one person is incredibly difficult. And having somebody take some of that mental load is going to be immensely helpful for your process and for your final piece. So I would absolutely recommend working as part of a collective if you're able to. Um, and just finding people that you trust. Like that's my, that's my role as a producer is to step in and sort of haul some of this mental load so that Tamara can focus on pieces of the art that she needs to focus on. 
so that she's not also thinking about 55 other things regarding casting and logistics and who's going to record it and and who's going to sound design it and how are we going to do this and are we going to have water for the actors and all of all of that kind of stuff that is stuff that that I take on in my role as producer and also I exist as a sounding board for uh, any creative stuff that she wants to bounce off of me or discuss. Uh, and we work together in that way. And we were really lucky through the new Colossus process and also having other folks on our team that we were really comfortable with and uh, were also really great creative minds. So our on our record days, our production assistants Barbet, who I think is here, and also Kima Lassiter. It was great to have them there in the room because they were also artists and we could talk with them about artistic things. And but that is that's not to say that you have to only ever seek out artists. That is we knew from early on that that's how the both of us like to work. Like we're both very collaborative people in in that way. If you are not a collaborative person in that specific way, then yes, find somebody that like this is their lane and they're going to stick in their lane and you know that you can just remove that hat and take your mind off of that and focus on what you need to focus on. And that's sort of how this works as a as a film or even as a as a piece of of theater. But let's dive into the the casting portion of it. I know we all we already mentioned having voices that are very distinct from each other because you can't see anybody. What I'll add to that is if you have a character that is that something about them visually is very important to the piece, make sure that you don't fall into any uh, stereotypes, right? If you have a character that's supposed to be big and imposing, and that is for a reason, don't fall into any sort of sizest stereotypes when it comes to who's going to voice that character. If you have a character that is race specific, make a point to not write in a cadence that is leaning into a place of, of stereotype, right? There are ways to do this without doing this, that, that, that is what the dialogue is, is for. If you have to remark on something physical on somebody, like that's what the dialogue is for. Just be careful, be as careful about this in the audio realm as you would be about it in the visual realm. But to the logistics of casting, you want to cast actors who are quick, who are focused, and who are ready to go. And that might cut some folks out for you. And especially in these times where things are a lot more remote, you also, if you're planning on casting actors, even post pandemic, you're thinking of casting actors that can record remotely, you have to think about actors that can record remotely. You have to make sure that you have people that have the, the technology to be able to do that. And that's going to benefit you in the long run. And when you think about casting folks who are fast, you have to think about this according to your time and your budget. Hiring somebody to be your recordist costs money. With New Colossus, we recorded at Trailblazer Studios um, through a partnership with them. It is where I work, full disclosure, but, you know, it, it costs money. No matter where you go, I know Master Builder was done 
at Shadowbox Theater. Uh, yeah, Shadowbox so that, that was done at Shadowbox. There's a bunch of other great places that you can record. There's soundtracks. There's, but none of these things are free. All of these things cost money. Even if you built out something in your own home, having somebody come in, that is their labor and their labor is valuable. Uh, so you have to think about how much money you're willing to spend and how much time you have. So you need to cast people that are willing to come in and work and can take a note very quickly and can turn on a dime. You have to have folks that are, that are focused and you have to have folks that are serious about this. This is a different type of work than theatrical stage work or even film work. Uh, I think I know a lot of people have a misconception with voiceover work in general that since you can read that it's easier or that you don't have to rehearse. That's not the case. So we all know that uh, cold read or reading in general is going to sound different than an organic conversation. So you want to have actors that are able to be off book and play a scene and not read lines at each other. Uh, that is really, really important. And you're going to have to have rehearsals. It might not be a, a two or three week rehearsal period like you would with a play, but you need to rehearse these scenes so that when you get into the room, you can do what you need to do and be, and be out of there. For New Colossus, we didn't ask for headshots. I never asked for headshots. Uh, I don't think they're necessary. Uh, and I think that we all have absorbed certain not great uh, stereotypes and things by osmosis. And there's a lot of unconscious bias that exists. And so I think not, not utilizing headshots is a great way to avoid that issue. We ended up with a fairly diverse cast for the new Colossus because we were casting strictly on who was best fit for whatever role that they were reading for. And we had people read for several different roles at several different ages. And it also opened you up to play with things like gender and deciding if for some characters, if gender is even important, it does it serve the story at all. So when you take the visual aspect out of it, it opens up all of these new opportunities for you to be able to work. And it, if we're talking about, you know, ability, like if you have somebody with mobility issues or a different sort of person with a different disability, if this is something they can do, this is something they can do. You're not having to think about, is the theater ADA compliant? Is my set ADA compliant? Uh, all of those things. So have fun with it. Don't get yourself locked in to a certain thing. We got like a hundred submissions for the new Colossus and we listened to each one of them and we narrowed them down and then we narrowed them down some more and we called folks and some people were available and some people weren't and we, and we made it work. And we had some folks that with new Colossus, new Colossus specific, we had musicians that would, and that was great because they were able to compose pieces for our project that were organic and felt true to the character because they were playing that character on a way down the line perspective, you know, casting people, being smart and casting people that are going to help your project, not just as actors, but cast people that are social media savvy, 
that are going to help you with the distribution aspect. That's not the only thing, and that's not even the most important thing, but I think that any of us who have ever self-produced anything on any medium that is something that does matter at the end of the day, especially when you're dealing with something like a narrative podcast that can be listened to anywhere all over the world. So we're not just selling tickets to our immediate community. Uh, We're not just dealing with a film festival circuit. As soon as we put it out there, anybody anywhere can listen to it. And we want to make sure that we have as wide a reach as we possibly can. Does length of Jeanette has asked Does length of the piece impact your choice for casting, especially for organic work, number of organic work, number of actors, equipment, timing it can it absolutely can well let me take that back it doesn't your specific choice like who you want to play a role i don't know that that makes a difference but number of people certainly makes a difference if you need 15 mics at one time that is going to pose a problem even having eight mics at a time in a professional studio we had we had to make that work we didn't have eight of the exact same microphone. Most places are not going to have eight of the exact same microphone. And so we had to sort of clump people together and, and record in a smart way where people were just coming in and out to record their parts of their scenes. And we were layering them on top of each other. So that's casting your general team for an audio production. You're going to have a sound designer an audio engineer. These may or may not be the same person. Uh, you're going to have a producer, production manager, assistant production managers, and a director who may be the same as your writer or the same as your producer. That is up to you. But those are the roles that will be served. How many people serve those roles is a you decision. But these are the roles that need to be served. You have to have somebody to do your sound effects and your sound design. You have to have somebody to record. And you have to have somebody that's going to edit the piece and mix the piece. Uh, And those two people can be the same people or different people, but keep that in mind for your budget. You need, you do need a producer that may be you. You may also be doing another role or it may be somebody separate entirely. You're going to need production managers on the day because rehearsal days and record days do need management. (laughs) You do need to, corral people and make sure they have what they need and they're doing all right and all of that fun stuff. And you're going to need a director if that's not you. If you are a writer and you say, I am a writer and that is my lane and that's where I would like to be, then you need to hire a whole team of folks. If you have an idea and you say, but I want a writer's room, like um, some of Tamara's upcoming projects, we're going to have a whole writer's room and everybody's going to collaborate and work together like you would on a TV series. Those are the, the, there are going to be decisions that you have to make. There is not a single template that's going to work for everybody, but in terms of siloing tasks, those are the roles that you're going to need to have filled because there's a lot of moving parts and, and sort of trying to operate heavy machinery with a team is a little bit easier than trying to operate heavy machinery on your own and having a team that trusts each other completely 
is going to be really important, especially when you're working on such a quick schedule. Mm-hmm. You have to trust that your sound designer is going to do what they what you need them to do. You're going to have to trust that your recordist is going to show up and do what you need them to do. You're going to have to trust your actors, your director, your producer to just take care of what they need to take care of. And you're going to have to do relationship building, which happens normally in rehearsals can also happen now if you're, or if you're doing any sort of remote work, this is what zoom is for. Uh, You guys can still chat and have sort of in-person conversations and team building uh, without being in the same room together. But I'm a big team, team building person, not necessarily trust fall sort of corporate style team building, but just building relationships in general, because I think it makes the work better. And I think you can tell when you're dealing with a group of folks that really trust each other, you can tell that in, in the final piece. So that is team building. That is, that is building your collective. Are there any questions about that? I also want to say one quick thing about casting or just emphasize that you're really casting an ensemble of voices. So even if you have multiple people who are, who are right for one particular role, you need to take those actors and pair them with the other people that you're casting to build an ensemble of voices again, so that you don't have too much sameness. And so that those voices all sound like they belong in that world together. And you also really want to have actors who can convey emotion with their voice, because a lot of us are really good face actors and we can make lots of good faces, but you really need to have people who can handle pitch and dynamics and all sorts of nuances with their voice, because that's the only tool that they have to convey story. So having people, again, as Aurelia said, who can be fast, who can be flexible, and who are really skilled vocally, that's that's just super important. Yes. It's like, that is a, a big, big, big thing. Um, Jeanette has a question. Jeanette says, does does Sandalas designer collaborate with the writer or does that person just go from script notes usually? Always, always, always talk to your tech team. This is not a transaction. It is a collaboration. You're not just going to hand somebody something and say, see you in two days. Love what you did. Maybe or maybe not. You need to talk. That needs to be a conversation. We gave our sound designer the intended plot uh, sound design plot um, and the script with the descriptive FX in it and then let them gave them time to look at it and read and come up with any questions that they had then came back and had a and had a production meeting the same way you'd have a production meeting for a piece of theater or for for a film and talk through that and what and what the script needed and what they would need and all of that and how much time they estimated it would take all of that stuff. Should we move on to rehearsing and recording? I think we should. Do you want to go or do you want me to go? You can jump in. I they've they're tired of me talking. Uh-huh. I'm sure. <laughs> As you can glean so far, the recording and rehearsing experience is pretty different than the usual theater rehearsal process. As a director, I will say that there's a lot of pre-production work that needs to be done that is different than my experience working in theater. So just to give you a sense, for the new Colossus, 
um, there was one read through and the purpose of that was just for me to hear if the audio adaptation worked. So it was just for me to get a sense of whether or not the changes that I made so that it could translate into audio were actually working. We had one read through of, of the script Then we had four rehearsals. The actors were only required to be at three of those four rehearsals. We had five recording days, three evenings, and two long weekend days. And that was for a two-hour script. I had um, less than all of that for Master Builder. So again, you have to be ready to work really fast. Every rehearsal was recorded so that the actors could listen back to their... um, their work. And so that I could make changes to the script when I listened back. The final script was given to the actors about a week before the first recording day. Um, There weren't any big surprises, but changes were being made up until then. There's no paper in the recording booth because you can't have that sound. So all scripts were digital on iPads or computers on music stands um, so that the actors could use those scripts as a reference. But again, there, there's no reading. There's no reading in the recording booth. It's all um, all acting, and most of the actors were really off book. Part of the rehearsal is getting the actors in an audio frame of mind. So what that means is thinking about acting for audio by acting with the mic. And acting with the mic is really different than acting on stage and the way that you use your voice and sort of the, the moments of intimacy that you can have by getting closer to the mic and farther away. You're acting for people with their eyes closed, basically. You're acting through the voice. Um, So there's a lot to think about for actors who are making the transition from theater to audio. It's also to get people used to making non-dialogue sounds. So on stage, you might have a smile, but if you want that smile to convey, you need to put it in your voice during the dialogue or you need to laugh and that will indicate what is happening in that moment. Rolling your eyes on stage um, can be really effective, but that doesn't translate directly to audio unless you add a, a sound effect along with it. So just kind of helping actors get a sense of that. During rehearsal, we were also reading through complete scenes because during the recording days, as you'll see, everything was chopped up. Um, So we weren't going through the entire script in order during the recording days. It was a little bit of this, then this, then this, then this. So during rehearsal, it was important to have the actors experience that continuity and then um, help them to kind of bookmark for themselves their state of mind in certain scenes so that when they were called to do that out of order, they could drop right in to that spot. What else? We also gave actors tips for what to eat, what to avoid eating prior to recording, what to wear um, for recording days. Uh, One other thing I'll say about, well, two other things I'll say about that. If you hear nothing else from this experience, the one thing that you absolutely need to take away from this is that as a director, never, ever, ever, ever look at your actors while they are performing because too much information comes into your eyeballs. So you always have to be listening. If you can listen from another room, that is great. But during rehearsals, as they are reading, close your eyes. Don't peek because you want to hear exactly what your listeners will hear. And it is astonishing to me uh, what a difference that would make. Um, I really do want to talk about how we kind of split up or anything else related to that. And then I'll, I'm going to get something ready here. Yeah, just to piggyback off of the be in another room, please, like, if, you, if you're able to be in another room, do that. If you're able to hear what they're doing over a sound system, that's even better. 
because you're going to hear what it sounds like out of the speakers or out of a microphone, uh, as opposed to the natural sound in the room. It makes, and it's going to change your directing. If you're somebody that's coming from, from film direction or stage direction, it, it, this process is going to be a different process because like uh, Tamara was saying, you get a lot of visual stuff when you're looking at somebody and communicating with them. It's very different for the voice. So I can be as gregarious as I want to be uh, with my hands and my face. And you're getting all of that from, from seeing it. But if you listen to just my voice, it's going to sound completely flat. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's the big example is that you can look at a scene and you can feel like totally gutted by it because you're watching what's going on. And then you can go back and listen to it. And it sounds like it sounds completely flat mm-hmm. uh, and not at all like what you saw. So if you can do that, if you can direct and everything while not looking at your actors, like that is, that is ideal. And what we did a lot with New Colossus was since a lot of us were experienced creatives, we split some of the work and it also helped us cut down on time where when we had these specific scenes, Tamara would work with some folks on one scene. I would work with somebody for another scene and Kima would work with somebody on a different scene all at the same time. So that we, when we came in uh, to record, everybody was just ready to go. And there was not a lot of give and take note process during actual recording. And for me, what you have to sort of, Obviously, as a director, you have to know your actors and how to communicate effectively with your actors. There's a lot of physical stuff that you can do prior to recording that can really help with different energies. If you have somebody that's very flat toned, uh, have them, you know, do a little dance right before you hit go and see how that works or have them start uh, saying something else. Uh, completely have them run into it like a runway but this is a this is a different podcast on how to direct (laughs) actors for audio dramas and I'm not gonna get too far into that but as opposed to as for talking about what folks need to be eating what folks need to be drinking this is not like a sleeping with the enemy situation where we're trying to tell you uh what to do it is as simple as please don't show up in a in a windsuit Uh, (laughs) because it's going to make a lot of noise it's stuff like stuff like that. So like don't, don't show up in a gold lame outfit because it's going to make a lot of noise. Don't wear a ton of buttons. Don't wear dangly jewelry and a bunch of bracelets because it's going to make noise. And if you know that there's something that you eat that um, sort of gums up the works when it comes to your vocal cords, don't eat it. Like, don't have pizza right before you record if you know that's going to get you all all weird. You know, snort some Flonase if that's going to help you out. Like, it's things like that. It's not like these things are off limits and you can <laughs> eat. Like, don't eat crackers right before you go into the booth, right? That kind of thing. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, that sounded uh, much harsher than I that I meant. I want to show folks something if I can figure out how to do it. And this is an example of our recording days. So this is kind of the master document. You see the on the far left side where it says scene. 
those are the scenes that we were recording. And basically, I, I took all of the larger scenes and I divided them into what we called scenelets. Um, most scenelets were like three-ish pages long, and they would have natural uh, break points if there were exits or entrances for characters, if there was uh, a big shift in that scene. And so we cut them down into these mini scenes called scenelets. That's what it means when it says like 7A, 7C, 7D. Those are all different scenelets between the larger scene of seven. And we did that for a lot of reasons. One of them was to um, a scheduling piece so that we could make sure that we didn't have people standing around. The other one was because we were really trying to get clean takes during the recording days. So the, the longer that people are talking, the more likely they are to make mistakes. And we were, even though you can make those changes in post by switching out pieces of audio and dialogue, which we did do, the goal is to try and get a really nice, clean take. So you'll see the color coding on this page. That's by recording day. So we have purple, then blue, then green, then yellow. And those were the scenes, the particular scenelets that were recorded on each recording day. Um, and this is what I mean by saying that they were out of order. We have the scenes, the page numbers, the title of the scene, who was called, the number of pages, and then the number of mics that were needed. As I really was talking about, there is a, a finite number of mics and sometimes you had to share mics. And so all of that needed to be figured out. Um, we had to know what props were uh, necessary to record some of those sounds and then sort of just different kinds of notes. So this was the overall script breakdown. And then I'm going to try and figure out how to show something more specific. But yes, uh, Jeanette, I know we sort of answered your question already. If we recorded, if we recorded the whole thing or scene by scene, it was obviously scene by scene and it was out of order, much like a film, just mm -hmm. so we have that out in, in the vocal world. Yes. So take a look. Yeah. So this is an example of our Sunday schedule. It was from 9am to three and you can see the order that the scenes were recorded in. We've, we had, we were recording scene two on the same day that we were recording scene 11, which is like the end of the play. So the actors have to be able to jump into that world. I scheduled between seven and 10 minutes per page of script. So seven to 10 minutes of recording for each script page on average. You'll see, and, and then we would try to do about three takes. Mostly we recorded between two and six takes uh, per scene lit. The first take was almost always discarded. It's kind of like a warm-up where you, the actors kind of try it. You give them notes in between, some kind of coaching in between, and then they would do additional takes over and over again. So you can just see we were trying to figure out when people would go on break because you don't want to have your actor talking for six hours. It's not going to work. Um, so they have to be able to get breaks um, and, and rest and then come back to it. We also needed breaks for ourselves because I can tell you that uh, listening for six hours straight is just exhausting. So making sure to take, to take breaks for the staff as well as for the actors. Um, but this is what it, this is what it kind of looked like from day to day. And while, and just while we're on the topic, uh, instead of, instead of waiting for down the road, but while we're on the topic of like how to structure, uh, your record days and how to parse out breaks, it is really important if you are 
for you, you as a writer, producer, director, or for your producer specifically to carve out time and space away from where you're recording if possible so that people can make noise and people can like open up bags and, and put stuff in the microwave and make their tea and all of that stuff and not have to worry about what's going on in the recording booth because and they can do vocal warmups or they can run through scenes and not have to worry about the sound bleeding through the walls or under doors or things like that. And also snacks. Snacks, very important. People will get hungry and hungry people don't pay attention. We all know this from personal experience. We also know it uh, if we are at all into things like education and social justice where, you know, kids that don't get breakfast don't pay attention well Mm -hmm. and don't learn well and don't perform well. And that is that does not change as you get older. Your brain works better when you are fed. So if you're asking people to be somewhere at eight o'clock in the morning, you need to feed them breakfast. If you're asking people to be somewhere past, like from nine or 10 or whatever through past lunchtime, you need to feed them. If you're asking people to stay through the night, you have to feed them dinner. And you also need to have waters and other snacks there for them to keep their energy going like for a rehearsal rehearsal started at seven o'clock we were not feeding people dinner for all of our rehearsal days but when we had long record days that would go from 11 a.m or sometimes you know 9 a.m through to six we had breaks and we had breakfast when they got there um boxed up so they could eat it when they could eat it and we had a lunch break and we had a dinner break and that was good for everyone it was good for the team building aspect so people could sit and and have time together especially with such a truncated process but it was also good for everyone to just take a breather and fuel their bodies and rest their minds uh and if you're doing this remotely obviously it it's a little bit easier because you can make you can make your sessions a little bit shorter and you're not going to have a recordist recording usually but sometimes there are programs and stuff that where you can do that that is not this podcast or this not this uh session either but I think I mentioned that as a director you need to have a pretty clear idea of what you're going for a lot earlier in this process than uh, the typical stage director, at least my experience as a stage director. And part of that has to do with, as Aurelia said, we have a very short amount of time in the recording studio. So you have to be able to get what you want very quickly. Um, There was coaching in between the takes with the different actors. And sometimes we would use the playback option. So if the actors were, if I wasn't able to translate what I wanted to the actors for each take, they just weren't, they just weren't getting it. We were able to play back for them what a previous take sounded like. And they almost always were able to uh, translate that into vocal changes. So that was a really helpful option, but you don't want to do it too much because it takes up a ton of time. So And then we would make decisions in real time about which was the best take. So we would do three takes and then I would pick one. I would say, we'll go with two. And then uh, the engineer would notate that. The production manager would notate that so that we would know which was the sort of winner of that. And any other kind of notes that needed to be made would be made by the production manager or assistant production manager um, in a separate notebook so that when we went back through, we could see uh, if there were sort of special circumstances for each take. And for me, it was incredibly important to have Aurelia, our engineers, 
our production managers in the room to help me figure out which was the best take sometimes. I mean, sometimes it was super obvious, but sometimes my ears just got so tired that I couldn't, I couldn't even really decide. Or I got so tired that I was like, let's just stop. And, and I really was like, no, we need to do it again. <laughs> so that was really helpful. So you have to have other ears. You really have to have other ears available. I wanted to show, oh, and the other thing is, like I said, you have to come in knowing what sounds you want to capture. So let me share something. Yeah. This was something that we had uh, available before the recording days that was just kind of a document that included what kind of sounds we would have in each scene generally. And if we needed cast members to make those sounds during the recording days, because we needed to capture those. Um, And sometimes we capture them as part of the actual acting of the scene. And then sometimes we captured them discreetly. So they would do a scene and then at the end would be like, all right, now uh, take a couple drinks on mic. And that would, that take would be labeled as like Masha drinking sounds or Soren coughs a lot or something like that. And so we would, we had a, a list of all of the things that we were trying to capture during our recording days. This is why it's super important. If you can, if you can swing it, have a production manager mm-hmm. because that is the person that was there tracking all of this stuff so that Tamara didn't have to track it. She could focus on her work. I didn't have to track it. I could focus on herding cats and <laughs> our production manager was there to track these, these sort of logisticals and technicals to make sure that, Oh, we didn't record this. Uh, we need to make sure we do this before uh, such and such is released. And then we would, after that, put together yet another, it's like a, there was a lot of Excel, a lot of Excel in our lives for this uh, particular experience. Um, but you can see here, it looks, this is the, the script in order and the column under D it are the best takes. So this was for the sound designer's reference and also for our reference, um, which ones we wanted to keep, if there were any recording notes that needed to be added in. And this was kind of one of the final documents that let us know what what we wanted to do. And you'll see there were some question marks there when I had to go back and re-listen. There's just a lot of listening going on. And because it's all recorded out of order, it's hard to sort of track what what works together. So sometimes you have to go back and re-listen. But Um, We also indicated under the I column if there was any mic sharing going on so that the designer would understand that that, um, two characters were being recorded on one mic. All of that information needs to be shared with your designer afterwards. Sure, I'll jump in. Um, So now we are talking about post-production. So we have cast it and we have rehearsed it and we have recorded it and now we have all of these recordings and we have to figure out what we're going to do with them. And also remember, when you're budgeting, you are budgeting for record days uh, with your recordist, who may or may not also be your sound designer. You are also budgeting for these post-production days with your sound designer. So please keep that in mind as you're writing for how complex your piece is. Like if you do, you have you're going to have to find ways to sort of cut things if you can't afford somebody for, you know, 15 hours of work. Uh, anyway, let's, let's get into post-production. 
That is when we're adding all of our, our sound design music. We are putting everything in the order that it's supposed to be in. And we are giving notes to our sound designer who put together, you know, his first pass of what he felt like everything should sound like. And we went back and gave notes. And we also, prior to that, like we gave them access to all of these Google documents, but we also decided the order of the piece where episodes were going to end, where other episodes were going to begin. And that made the note process easier because they could finish one episode. We could listen to it and give notes as opposed to having waiting for him to finish six and then having to listen to all six and give notes on all six. Post-production is also when we recorded any um, intros and outros. That was all one person. And it was all the same across all of them. If you have, if you're wanting to do things like last time ons or next time ons, uh, you need to make those notes in the rest of your logistical documents so that your sound designer knows and they can cut those pieces and sort of put together a trailer or last time ons and next time ons because those are going to be a separate process. The actors don't really they're not involved in, in the, in the post process. Once they're done recording, they're done. So this is very much like a film and that once you go into post, you are in post and, and, and that is a whole new team of people, but that is where sort of everything is coming together and big thing in post. Number one, sound effects, sound effects and music. Both of these things cost money. Let's be honest about that. Both of these things cost money. If you're hiring a sound designer, hopefully you're hiring a sound designer that has access to a sound effects library or several sound effects libraries because trying to piecemeal those things individually can get a little bit pricey. Same deal with music. You should be thinking about this ahead of time because you have to license stuff that's going to take time. If you can, if you can get lucky and the way that we got lucky and the way that Tamara got lucky for also Master Builder working with folks on the team already that could compose music and um, write different sorts of songs that we needed. That was great. It cut out a lot of time and it cut down a lot of budget. If you can't do that, there's also uh, production music libraries. We, we used a lot of that for our sort of underbeds for most of our scenes, just like narration beds of uh, stock music. We, curated them very intensely so that they didn't sound like we just sort of plopped stuff in because we felt like we needed something to take up space. So doing that intentionally, uh, if you wanted to, if you felt like you needed to hire a separate music supervisor, we exist. And that's something that, that they can do for you. We dealt with that on the budget end. There's a lot of different ways to go about it, but make sure, make sure, make sure whatever you are using, you are cleared to use. You are not, you can't just put Beyonce in there and go on about your business because you feel like not a lot of people are going to, to hear it. You don't know who's going to hear it. You don't know who's litigious. And also there's robots everywhere that track these things and can, can identify when something is being used and uh, pull it off of various platforms. So I would absolutely suggest looking into production music libraries, uh, looking into music supervisors if music is, is not your jam, and getting all of that taken care of from the outset so you're not adding stress and time 
in your post-production process? Yeah. So as really said, it's, you know, you know, in the post-production, we're kind of pulling it all together from a directorial standpoint. It's about doing a lot of listening so that you know that the timing is right with the, with everything, that the levels are right and that it is clear what those sounds are. There were several times in master builder when I, I was listening to a scene and I didn't know what the sound was. Like I, I couldn't figure out what the sound was. And, um, the sound designer, Edith Snow, said, well, this is an actual recording of like an office chair moving around. It, it is an office chair. And I said, well, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't sound like that. So we can't use it. So you're trying to sort of figure out, you're also um, becoming aware of sounds that are missing. Uh, what, what other sounds you need to add in, in order to, again, make the story clear and make the action clear. Um, something that became apparent to me was that as a director, even though it's an audio piece, I need to have a sense of, uh, how that piece would be realized in real life or on stage uh, as far as blocking goes. So in other words, you need to understand what direction your characters are entering from, what direction they're exiting from, where the doors are, how close to each other they are, because the sound designer needs all of that information. Um, if you have it sound designed so that people travel from one ear to the other ear, that's important information for your sound designer to have. Um, if someone is you know, 200 feet away from the person who has sound point of view, then the sound designer needs to know all of that. So you, you definitely, even though it's not a physically realized piece, you need to have an understanding of what it would be like if it were, um, because that information is really helpful to your sound designer. So we just went back and forth. Sam Elia was the sound designer for The New Colossus, and he would send an episode, and then I would give notes. And so here is, let me give an example of what some of the notes um, and just so you all know, we are wrapping up soon. We're getting to yeah. that. Oh, Larry has a question. He says, how were, how were the rehearsals spread out one week, two weeks? We were close, right? Yeah. It all happened within, a, it all happened with everything happened within a three week period. Mm -hmm. But one um, was a long weekend. Yes. One was the, one was a Friday through Sunday. And then a couple of weekdays after that, I was not present for this is an, just an example, just to kind of give you a sense of what I was doing when I was listening and giving notes back. You can see the numbers are timestamps so that the sound designer would know exactly where to go. There's a lot of like fading, tightening, adding sounds that weren't in the original script. Like I didn't have a sound effect written in as a playwright, but we realized we needed them in order to tell the story. Questions that I had for Sam about what was possible related to the sound design. So there's a lot of there's a lot of timing stuff, and this is what it looked like. So we had all of this. I would send it to him. He would redo or ask questions, and we'd have a conversation, and then we'd listen to it again. So lots and lots of listening. And again, it's really important to have other ears on something because because it's sort of like if you know the punchline to a joke. Like if you know the punchline, it's really hard to hear it with fresh ears, but if you can bring other people in to listen and tell you what they are hearing, that can be really, really important. Let's go into, let's go into budget, 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 budget. We don't want you to get the wrong idea. Even when we're talking about something that's being done remotely, you're going to have to budget this similarly to a uh, stage production. People's effort and time cost money, pay your actors pay your technicians, pay your creative staff. There's not something to get away from when you're talking about doing something on, 
audio versus on stage. You don't have a costume designer to pay, but your sound designer is going to work many more hours than your sound designer would be uh, developing a soundscape for a theatrical piece, which is they develop it and then you do the show mm-hmm. and it doesn't change. And you're, you're usually paying them a stipend for their time. But with this, it's more time and it is more, more a little bit more effort because it's longer uh, and more involved. So you're going to have to pay them. You're going to have to pay your production managers, just like you would pay your stage managers because they are, that is the work that they are doing. Mm-hmm. You're paying your producers paying. If you're working in a writing collaborative, you're paying your other writers. So budget this the same way you would budget any other uh, self-produced project that you would be working on. Oh, and space. Oh my God. Rehearsal space. If you need it, uh, might cost money. Uh, and recording space will cost money. If you are, if we're thinking about this remotely and you're like, okay, well, if I do this via zoom, can I cut costs that way? Sort of, but not really because you're going to have to pay your sound designer still. And you might still have a recordist. Like I said, there are programs where your actors can be recording into their own mics and then that is being cast out to a sound designer somewhere or they're recording locally and then just sending a raw file, which then takes more time. Mm -hmm. So you're not saving a ton of money by recording from home versus recording out in the world because you're using different mics. Uh, You might be dealing with some different sorts of technical issues that your sound designer is going to have to take more time to deal with. Yeah. And it can scale. I mean, I heard of a recent audio drama that had like an $80,000 budget. It much like the theater, you can work for, you know, you can have pull something together for a very low amount of money, or you can have something that's like extraordinarily expensive and that it, it, it just depends. It also depends on how much you want, how many hats you want to wear. I don't recommend wearing a lot of hats, uh, but that will also have an impact on your budget, but I think they're pretty equivalent. So just, just so as you know, is going into it. I think that's really important. Hopefully you feel like this is something that is uh, exciting and that you can do. I will tell you, I am not a tech person. So if I can manage this, if I can learn how to do it, then any of you out there absolutely can. And, the, and it's a very flexible field there are lots of different ways that you can approach this. I know people who make uh, scripted audio fiction as solo as a solo voice that's lightly scored, and that's their whole piece. So um, there are people who do like who take improvised D and D games and then edit them and score them. So it's like a wide open field, and yeah. you can bring it in, in whatever direction that you want to. Um, so we hope that this is encouraging uh, more than anything else. And also talking about things like COVID and sort of diversifying your revenue streams in general. A lot of us are coming from the theater. A lot of us have had to postpone projects uh, because of COVID. And we're here to tell you that audio dramas are are a great way to adapt work um, or to sort of diversify those revenue streams where you're not having ticket sales right now but this is something that you could do especially if you're if you're if you're working for a larger theater this is something that you can do that is scaled down from perhaps what your normal production budgets would be 
and it is something that you can put out there. And it, and unlike a show, it's an infinite number of seeds. It's an infinite number of, of ears that you can get on your project. And also this is something that's different from zoom. Everybody's doing zoom readings. Uh, and I think that's great. Women's theater festival is doing some very virtual theater specific work. And I think leaning into the space is a very smart thing and a lovely thing to do, but this is just something else. This is something different. And I would absolutely encourage and recommend any folks out there that are artistic directors or, or producers to sort of pursue this area of work as something that is a benefit to your companies. You can sort of think about it as a third stage, right? You have your, your main stage, your second stage, and perhaps audio dramas can be your third stage. It's a great way to devise new works. Um, it's a great way to get new voices out there. So would absolutely encourage and recommend we're here. If you want to consult with us about anything or, or partner with us to do any sort of new work for your companies, you know, we're here, we're, we're local as if that really matters right now, but we know you guys and we know this community and we know these actors and we know what's, what is available to you here. We are definitely touting ourselves as, as a resource, at least to help get you on your way. And we have a couple of questions about this. So Thumbprint Studios asks, how do you find distribution for your final piece? So we mostly self-distribute. Uh, self-distribution is the main thing, especially when you're starting out. Starting out, because um, we, well, Artist Soapbox is is quite technically a podcast network. So they, if Tam chose to, she could distribute shows, but most folks self-distribute and pop stuff, you know, there are hosting sites for your files and then they sort of send them out to all of the various podcasting platforms that people use, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, all of that fun stuff. So you really can just put it out there yourself unless you choose to go shop it around to some of the larger podcast networks, which is absolutely something that you can do. Uh, I've done it for some folks and uh, on the other end of things in my day job. And you sort of shopped around the same way you'd shop a TV show around or a film script around. And we have one more question, but Tam, did you want to say anything about the distribution aspect? Yeah. I mean, and to answer also some of the stuff that's in the chat, I think we could maybe combine them. My experience is producing my own work. So I think it's tricky with when you're talking about um, copyrighted pieces and how many listeners there are going to be. And I'm not sure how you would even approach uh, paying for the rights for those types of scripts that are that exist written by people who are not me. I distribute my work through the Artist Soapbox podcast platform and then figure out ways how to connect it to these other pieces that really mentioned, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And there's a process to do all of that. Uh, you can build a website and it can be played through the website, um, which is also a possibility. Those things all cost money. Um, having paying for a website, paying for a hosting service that holds your finished audio files. And there are degrees of expense related to that, but most of those are monthly expenses that you also have to budget. Um, people asked about budgeting um, for 
you know, just making the audio drama. I mean, it really is very close to what you would spend on any kind of indie theater production uh, locally. So five to 15,000, I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And all, all told. Yeah. I mean, and obviously if budget's a hurdle for you and you know enough people, you can call on favors. If you're comfortable yeah. with calling in favors, no one's discouraging you from doing that. But obviously we are here to encourage folks to uh, pay their collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. And so it depends on if you can get volunteers or if you can get donations or all of that. A lot of the work that I've done has been grant funded. So I applied to local arts councils or other institutional places like that and received grant funding. Also, there are individual donations, very much like the theater. We're on Patreon, so money comes in that way. Uh, It's kind of a cobbled together kind of thing. You can get sponsors who will sometimes pay uh, as well. The, The monetization piece is like a whole other kind of podcast episode, which is tricky. Did we have other questions? Anything else that people... I think a lot of people are wanting your contact info. So maybe if you can say it verbally and put it in the chat. Um, I'm at artistsoapbox at gmail.com. You could go to artistsoapbox.org. That's the website where I have my main uh, podcast, my interview podcast, also all over social media. So I'll pop that in the chat. You can listen to uh, the new Colossus podcast at newcolossuspodcast.com. That's where that lives. And I am at aurelia.nicole.belfield, A-U-R-E-L-I-A, N-I-C-O-L-E, B-E-L-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com if you want to contact me directly. Um, And if you want to see any of the work that I'm doing, you can find me at aurelia, A-U-R-E-L-I-A, dash Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, dot card c-a-r-r-d dot co that is where i keep my upcoming projects available for you guys to check out thank you everybody so much for your time this is a lot of us talking oh check the q a somebody says oh i see the question about public domain scripts megan was your question about okay how do you select the pieces you're adapting Uh, Do you try to focus on public domain pieces, uh, licensed pieces? Yeah, this is outside of my, my area. I don't, I don't even know what I would do about getting rights to a, to a piece that other folks. I would um, have, it's like working with different sorts of copyrights on a daily basis. Obviously um, it is, uh, it can be a difficult and arduous process. I know with Artist Soapbox, uh, you guys normally self-produce, self-write. It, everything is uh, newly devised work. I think if you're working with something in the public domain, it's in the public domain. You can use it. If you wanted to do your own adaptation of a, of a Shakespeare or something like that, Like that's fair game. So adapting a public domain play does not require royalties. If you are doing your own adaptation of it and you are not using a specific person's adaptation, sort of like music, where... Uh, there are plenty of pieces that exist in the public domain, but if you're using a specific person's arrangement of it, you do need to license it from that person. If you're not doing that, then um, if you're using a public domain adaptation of a public domain piece, you do not have to pay royalties for it. But if you're trying to actually license something from someone, you do have to go through the usual channels that you would to license something for a theatrical piece. It is not any different. 
So I would encourage you to uh, devise your own works. Yeah. So I chose um, Ibsen and Chekhov because they are in the public domain because enough time has passed that I can do adaptations of their work and not worry about it. That's exactly why, well, not exactly why. One of the many reasons I chose those two particular pieces. Oh, we have a Q&A question. Do you have any recommendations for grants to apply for in regards to funding to pay your artists for newer theater companies? I have applied for local grants. So uh, if you have a local arts council, I would always go local first. I know that, you know, audio is really uh, generating a lot of momentum right now. So there might be media grants that you could apply for or, or new um, kind of new multimedia works uh, grants that you could apply for. But I would always suggest that you start local um, and see what's available and then kind of branch out from there. Uh, and Joanna has a question. If you're into producing but not writing, is there an opportunity to maybe partner with a writer? Yes. Hello. That is what I've, <laughs> is what I have done with uh, Tamara for New Colossus and for an upcoming anthology piece. So that is, and I, I am a writer. I've not written anything specific for uh, the audio drama realm yet, but I think it's like anything else. There's not a database out there for you to find folks. We sort of came together uh, organically. I asked her if she was interested in having somebody help produce her work and she said, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what a writer loves? A producer. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're a producer, you will find a writer who will be grateful for you. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So if this, if, if this is something that you're interested in doing, and like we say, a lot of this is self-distributed. So yeah. if you know somebody that has a story that you feel really passionate about telling, go to them and ask them if they want you to, to assist in the production process, if it is, it is honestly that simple. The internet is absolutely the wild west when it comes to this kind of work. And if you want to um, ask Tamara to help you write a piece, or if you want to ask me to help you to produce a piece, we are, we are here. We are freelance and we are around. Yeah. And one last quick thing, and I know we're running over right now, but we didn't really talk about the marketing piece and the marketing piece is such a huge component of this. It's, it's so important. And that's something that was a big challenge with the new Colossus because of when we released it. Um, The original plan was to release in May and um, instead we released in April because that's when everything was really starting to pick up speed and shut down uh, around COVID in the United States and more specifically in North Carolina. And so the most important thing was to kind of get it out there, to make it available for people to listen to, to make it available for actors who might want to do voice work that they could have like a proof, basically proof of concept for all of us. But that meant that our marketing kind of got really short shrift and a lot of stuff that was planned didn't happen. And part of that was because of sort of the rush to release, but also part of that is because this is really not my skill set. Like I don't like to do it. I don't want to do it. And I'm not good at it. So if you are a marketing person in particular, and that is your gift and your genius, and you want to be available to writer, producer, directors who want to put their work out there, that in, for podcasts in particular, for audio dramas in particular, is so important. Um, managing all the social media, managing all the publicity and marketing, it's like a whole other ball of stuff. So yeah. if you're so, that person, yeah. connect with us. <laughs> 
Hi. I, yeah, I am not a I am not a marketing genius. So, and that's another budget thing. But pay somebody. Like, if you can't, if you know somebody that can do this, pay somebody to do this. Pay a PR person. Pay a social media marketer. Pay a copywriter. All of that kind of stuff. Thank you guys for staying a little late. We appreciate all of you. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, Kaylee Morrison did the visuals for the new Colossus. She designed our graphic. Thank you all so much for your, your time and have a wonderful whatever day this is, Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. <laughs> time is still a flat circle. Um, have a great Wednesday. Do you know what's happening with Artist Soapbox? Have your ears missed our original scripted audio fiction? Well, come on and listen to the Declaration of Love Anthology, The New Colossus, and The Master Builder. Get up to dates on patreon.com slash artistsoapbox and become a patron of the podcast. Please see the links in the show notes and at artistsoapbox.org. You can always reach out to artistsoapbox at gmail.com. Stay in touch. Thanks, friends.